Well, in chapter 31, verse 35, Job cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. At a kid's summer camp, a counselor was leading a discussion on creation. He explained why God created the clouds, the trees, the rocks, the rivers, the animals, that God had a good reason for all that He had created. That's when one little boy questioned him. If God has a good purpose for everything, then why did He create poison ivy? Well, his question was followed by dead silence. The counselor didn't know how to answer. Finally, another child came to the rescue. He explained to the class, the reason God made poison ivy is because he wants us to know there's certain things we just need to keep our cotton-picking hands off of. A good explanation indeed. I believe that when we get to heaven, we'll discover that every story begun in this life does finish with a happy ending. There is a good reason for everything God does. The problem, though, is that we don't always see His purpose. There are issues in life, like poison ivy, that cause us great grief, and for no apparent reason. Some situations appear to have no sane, logical explanation, and we wonder why. How do you respond when bad things happen and God gives no reason why? As Christians, we believe that God is sovereign. That He does whatever He likes, whenever He likes, however He likes, to whomever He likes. That God rules the universe, both good and evil. God is the boss. Read the first chapter in the book of Job. And you'll notice Satan can't harm a single hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. Nothing happens in our lives, or in the universe for that matter, that isn't at the very least permitted by God. Of course, God's sovereignty is a wonderful doctrine when circumstances are pleasant, when life goes well. We're delighted God chooses to bless us. But what's your attitude when life takes a turn for the worse and for no apparent reason? In my early years as a Christian, I had a friend who was a captivating Bible teacher. He had a growing ministry. He was a husband and a father of five kids. And his life was influencing thousands of people for Jesus, including my own. I'll never forget the day when I heard on the radio that the prop plane that Dan had been flying had slammed into the side of a mountain. The news broke my heart. And I can remember sitting there crying out, God, why? Look at all he's doing for your kingdom. Why this? This is also how I respond when I hear of a tornado that touches down and wipes out a trailer park. Or a family on vacation destroyed by a drunk driver. Or a virtuous woman raped. Or a hemophiliac getting AIDS from a blood transfusion. Or a hard-working husband who gets laid off and can no longer feed his family. Or a child born severely retarded. Or a follower of Jesus diagnosed with a cancer. What happens to your faith when you encounter disappointing situations? How do you respond when bad stuff 
happens to good people. Hey, even God's people. And you see nothing good result. Have you ever asked why? Have you ever screamed why? How do you deal with the poison ivy in your life? Well, Job dealt with plenty of poison ivy. In the first two chapters of the book of Job, we learn how that overnight he lost everything. His fortune, his family, his fitness, even his friends forsook him. Usually a man in such distress can lean on the comfort of his wife. Oh, but Mrs. Job told him, you just need to curse God and die. Not exactly what you want to hear from the missus. I'm sure that you've all heard of the stress factor index. It's a set of numerical values that try to quantify the amount of stress produced by certain events. For example, the death of a spouse equals a 100. The death of a close family member, 63. Fired from a job is 47. A pregnancy is a 40. That's for the wife. I think it's a 100 for the husband. And on it goes. Well, the experts say that 79% of those whose stress factor index hits 300 plus suffer a major illness as a consequence. When I figured Job's stress factor index, it added up to 650. Twice the danger level. If you think you got problems, just check out Job. And here's the kicker. Job did nothing to deserve what had happened to him. Job gets vindicated from the outset. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord himself says, All that happened to Job came upon him, quote, without a cause. Oh yes, Job was human. And like all humans, he was a sinner. But he had done nothing specific to warrant his calamity. If you doubt Job's devotion to God, just look at his initial reaction to his loss. In chapter 1, verse 21, there he utters these words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed. Be the name of the Lord. To me, that is one of the strongest statements of faith in all the Scripture. Job chapter 1 verse 22 sums up Job's part in his calamity. In all this, Job did not sin. You see, in Job's chapters 1 and 2, we are told why all the devastation occurred in Job's life. Job got caught in the middle of a cosmic showdown between God and Satan. One day, Satan appeared before God. And like a proud papa, God mentioned the piety of his servant Job. Satan scoffed. Job is so blessed, why wouldn't he serve you? God, you've spoiled him. Let a little hardship break loose in his life and Job will turn on you in a heartbeat. Ironically, rather than Job being punished for some evil deed, his agony was caused by just the opposite. God was so proud of Job's devotion that he had staked his honor on Job's reactions. Without knowing it, Job was the appointed protector of God's glory. You know, whenever I read the book of Job, I'm struck by an often overlooked fact. Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. 
<laughs> you ever thought about it? He never did. We are told why he suffered, but not Job. Until the day he died, Job never got an explanation for his calamity. God never told Job why. But that sure didn't stop his friends from trying to answer the question. And for the bulk of the book, chapters 3 to 31, three buds, Elevaz, Bildad, and Zophar take their turns offering explanations for the cause of Job's suffering. Now, I figure they were golfing buddies. They were a foursome that met every Saturday. And when Job didn't show up one morning, they came to check on their friend. When they arrived, they find Job in the ash heap. He's scratching his oozing sores with a broken piece of pottery. And for seven days, they just sit there in silence, mourning for their friend. As it turns out, just sitting there with Job, being there for Job, was the only benefit they offered. For when they opened their mouths, they began to torture Job with erroneous counsel. In chapter 16, verse 2, Job tells his friends how much help they were. He says, miserable comforters are you all. You see, Job's golfing buddies are like many folks today who are trapped in a restrictive, defective theology. I like to call it a kindergarten theology. You see, it's the simplistic view. It's the belief that in this life, sin is always punished and good is always rewarded. Thus, when bad things happen, it must mean that the victim has committed a sin. Now, as kids, our experiences with mommy and daddy seem to confirm this belief. Parents are great at seeing to it that our good deeds are prized and that our disobedience is punished. But then we move out into the real world and we discover that's not always how life pans out. Bad things do happen to good people. Bad people often get away with their crimes. Circumstances are not always just. Life isn't always fair. You know, being a bit of a golfer myself, I've noticed how that golfing buddies particularly like to hold to this simplistic kindergarten theology. I mean, when a golfer hits an errant shot off into the woods and it caroms off a tree trunk and bounces back out into the center of the fairway, he'll laugh and, and then he'll say to his partner, well... Looks like I'm living right. As if holy living entitles you to favorable breaks, while unholy living leaves you in the rough. Man, I wish life was always that straightforward, but it's not. And this is what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar refuse to admit. They become adamant. For 29 chapters, they scrutinize Job to uncover the smallest chink in his armor on which they can blame his demise. They try to find a spot, a blemish, a flaw. At points in the dialogue, they even make up accusations. Job's three friends try every tactic imaginable to pin a sin on Job. Tragically, there are also Christians today who hold to this same faulty theology. Listen to most TV preachers and you'll hear a kindergarten theology. Do the right thing and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy and happy. You'll be driving your Lexus in no time. Trust me, Paul and Jan would have never invited Job onto their show. I have a friend who suffered from chronic asthma. She was a godly lady, a woman of prayer. 
And yet her Christian friends insisted that her suffering was the result of a sin in her life. Her friends, like Job's friends, went to great efforts to pin a sin on her. Reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon strip. You like Peanuts? I do. Snoopy's standing there next to his doghouse. It's been burned to the ground by fire, tragically so. And he's sobbing. He says, I've lost my pool, my Van Gogh, all of my keepsakes. That's when Lucy approaches. And she snaps at him. I can tell you why your house burned down. You sinned. Snoopy responds with one of the best theological answers ever uttered. He sounds like Job. He answers, You see, here's the problem with this kind of defective theology. It backs you into a corner so that when bad stuff happens, you only have two choices. Either God failed or I've sinned. You see, that's why Job's friends insist that the problem is Job. If it isn't, in their minds, it means God has failed. And they're not about to entertain that possibility. In reality, though, neither assertion was true. The real cause of his sufferings was hidden in the heavens. He knows there's a reason. There's got to be another option. He just doesn't see it. And learning why becomes the burning issue in Job's life. Once two Americans, they traveled down to Mexico to open up a bungee jumping operation. Well, as they erected the tower, a curious crowd of locals all gathered around to watch. Finally, it came time for a test jump. One of the guys, he dives off of the platform, but when he bounces back up, his partner notices that he's a little scraped. He gasped, oh no, the cord must be too long. He tried to grab his friend, but it was too late. The second time the guy bounces back up to the platform, he's in worse shape. He's got some broken ribs, a bunch of bruises. Again, his buddy tries to grab him, but he slips through his hands and he misses him. Well, the third time the poor fellow rises back to the platform, he's so badly beaten that he's nearly unconscious. This time his sidekick lunges and grabs him, pulls him back to the platform, and he asks him, he says, man, I'm so sorry. He says, was the cord too long? And that's when his partner replied, oh no, the cord was just fine, but, but what's a piñata? hey sometimes life gets rough it'll beat you up and you don't know why or worse it treats your partner your spouse or your friend or your co or even your child like a pinata and you get no explanation He loves you, Lord. Why did this happen to him? She's such a good person. Why her, Lord? We've all asked those questions, haven't we? You see, Job too was good and godly. But virtue didn't insulate him from pain. Remember, it wasn't Job's sin that made him a target for hardships. It was his goodness. Don't be deceived. Just because a person is hurting doesn't mean they're sinning. And just because a person is thriving doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased. It does pay to be good and godly. But payday doesn't always come in this life. In the here and now, calamity can strike even the godliest among us. 
difficulties can hit without explanation. Hey, faith doesn't always get a reason. Don't let life back you into a corner. When things go wrong, we tend to think that we only have two conclusions. Either God failed or I'm a failure. And since none of us are going to blame God, it's got to be me. So we beat ourselves up. But remember the story of Job. When bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean that God has failed, nor does it mean that you're a failure. There could be a reason hidden from view. Only heaven knows the whole story. And God is expecting us to trust in Him. And this is why our responses on earth really do matter. For in a mysterious way, unknown to you and me, God's reputation may be hanging on the way that we handle that hassle or that hindrance or that hardship. God's honor in heaven, His glory may be riding on your reaction to the twists and turns life throws your way. To me, the message of Job is the most practical in all of the Bible. It ups the ante on everything that happens in my life. My every reaction becomes strategic. Think of it. Every angelic eye in heaven may be fixed on you to see how you handle that illness or that lie told about you or that lawsuit filed against you. Will you fold or be faithful? You see, the book of Job teaches a vital lesson. The stress in my life may just be a test of my faith. Listen, Satan has accused God of stacking the deck. Of buying our devotion with his blessing. He has assumed that God is nothing more to us than a meal ticket. And he's thrown down the gauntlet. He has said to God, nix their blessing and they'll stop their devotion. Do you realize God may have chosen you to prove otherwise? God's character may be on the line in heaven. And your response to difficulty is the very thing that wins the day. I'm just saying the stakes may be a lot higher than any of us realize. The one certainty is that our reactions do matter. Now I have no doubt that Job would have gladly suffered for God if he had just been told the effect that his faithfulness was having in heaven. But you see, Job never got a hint. Understand, his greatest grief by far was not caused by his material losses or even the boils on his body. Job's most excruciating pain was not knowing why. You know, I've found that the best pain reliever by far is an Advil. It's not Tylenol 3, not even Demerol. It's an explanation. Hey, if there's a good reason behind the suffering, then I tend to rise to the occasion. But how do you respond when God refuses to give you a reason? It's like going to the doctor to get a shot. Oh my, I don't like shots. But you know, if I'm told the reason for the shot, I might accept it. I, I might even endure it. I might be thankful for it. But what if I'm given a series of shots without being told the reason that they're being given? Well, trust me, I won't be as tolerant. In fact, I'll get downright ugly and upset. I'll begin to pound my fist down on the counter. I'll demand to know why. And that is exactly what Job begins to do. He begins to pound his fist. 
And over the course of his dialogue with his three friends, Job demands more and more to know why. In chapter 7, verse 11, Job even grows bitter. There he moans, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. You know, it's interesting. The word complain occurs more times in the book of Job than in any other book in the Bible. Nearly half of the complaints recorded in Scripture fall from the lips of Job. We speak of the patience of Job, but the person in this story with the real patience was God. God was the one who had to put up with Job spewing bitterness. You see, here's what happens. Job loses perspective. He forgets who God is. His holiness, His righteousness, His justice. And Job becomes bold and brash. For as he questions God, in his mind, in his estimation of things, Job begins to become bigger and bigger and bigger. And God starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. It's been said, in asking why, Job loses his way. So that by the time we get to our text, chapter 31, verse 35... Job believes God owes him an answer. In fact, he demands it in writing. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Arrogance has replaced Job's innocence. You see, Job has become so sure of himself that he started to doubt God. At one point in the dialogue, Job says to his friends, If my only two options are I've sinned or God has failed, then God has failed. Because I certainly haven't sinned. Job, who do you think you are? Job comes perilously close to blasphemy. In his commentary on Job, author Don Baker makes a point about pain. He writes, pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things, say things, even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and then just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead or He's gone fishing or He just doesn't care. You see, pain was having this kind of an effect on Job. And toward the end of Job's discourses, he starts challenging God to speak. He charges God with giving him a raw deal. He accuses God of being unfair. In his attempts to vindicate himself, Job accuses God. Job is more into proving his own innocence than he is in upholding God's justice. In short, our friend Job, he cops an attitude. You know, some situations have reasons that will only make sense in heaven. This is why today, living a temporal, earthbound existence as we do, it's wrong for us, from our limited perspective, to question or criticize an eternal God. We're told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Never forget one of the first rules of theology, where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. If God doesn't offer you an explanation, 
Learn to live without one. Don't push it. Ultimatums don't work on God. We need to learn to trust His wisdom. You see, here's the question. Can you trust God even when you can't trace Him? It's easy to praise God when we see His hand at work. When God's blessings, even His lessons, are tangible. But is our faith alive enough to survive in the dark? Did you hear the four passengers on the train from Atlanta to Philadelphia? All four riders, they were seated in the same compartment. There was an Atlanta Braves fan. There was a Philadelphia Phillies fan. There was a gorgeous young woman. And there was an elderly lady. Well, everyone was being very cordial to each other until the train passed through a long, dark tunnel. Suddenly, there was a loud kiss followed by an equally loud slap. Well, when the train exited the tunnel, each of the passengers was sitting there quietly, sort of looking at each other, trying to interpret the noises. Well, the beautiful woman, she thought, isn't that odd? A Philadelphia fan tries to kiss an elderly woman and not me. Well, the elderly lady, she thought, my, that young woman, she's a good girl. She has some fine morals. Well, the Philadelphia Phillies fan, he thought, man, that Braves fan, he's a smart guy. He steals a kiss and I get slapped. <laughs> While the Braves fan, he sat there gloating. He says, perfect. I kiss the back of my hand, slap a Philadelphia fan, and nobody ever knows. <laughs> hey, sometimes things happen in the dark. And God chooses not to reveal His specific reasons. And check this out. If we're not careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions, can't we? Reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mother asked him to fetch the broom off the back porch. He balked. He said, but mom, it's dark out there. The mother told him, said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is with us wherever we go. He's with us even in the dark. The little guy, he walked over to the back door, he cracked it open just a fraction, and then he whispered out, he said, Hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? <laughs> God wants us to learn. God wants us to learn that Jesus is with us even in the dark places. Well, how do you react when circumstances occur that you don't deserve? Have you grown bitter? Have you become angry at God or the circumstances that He's created? Have you been demanding an explanation? Is your name Job? Well, let me show you how God finally responds to Job. In chapter 38, God appears to Job, but not to answer his questions. No, no. God takes a most unusual tact. He comes to Job asking questions not answering them. And for five chapters, God asked Job a series of questions that he can't possibly answer. In fact, a series, a total of 70 unanswerable questions. The Almighty is about to show Job that he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. You see, it's time for God to put Job back in his place. God appears to Job in a whirlwind, and he says to him in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 38, 
Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who's this guy who's been talking, who I've been hearing talk, but doesn't know what he's talking about? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Pull up your bootstraps, buddy. I got a few questions for you. You see, God is about to remind Job that you spell the word God, G-O-D, not J-O-B. In verse 4, God begins his quiz. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? (laughs) Job has been instructing God on how to run the universe. But here, God makes it clear that he was doing fine before Job came along. God was doing just fine. He didn't need Job's help after all. He says, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God even gets sarcastic. Job, was it you holding the other end of the tape when we measured out the universe? I don't think so. You see, throughout the book, Job's incessant questioning of God's wisdom implied that he could do a better job of running the universe than God. But could he? Can you? On and on, these questions continue. God firing these queries that Job can't answer. You know, it's interesting. As Job questioned God, in Job's estimation, he had grown bigger and bigger, and God had gotten smaller and smaller. But now when the roles are reversed, and God begins to question Job, suddenly, in Job's thinking, it's God who's becoming larger and larger and larger again, and it's Job who's becoming smaller and smaller. Job is getting taken down a notch or two. He's getting whittled down to size. Up against God's infinite wisdom, a finite Job knows very little. What right does he have to question or criticize the Almighty? Who does Job think he is? See, here's a great quote. If there's anything a sufferer needs, it's not an explanation, but a fresh new look at God. You see, we think we need an answer that will never be satisfied until we know why. But what we really need is a vision of God. For when God appears, the reason no longer matters. All that really matters is God. Job thinks he's learned his lesson. Listen to his reply to God in chapter 40 verse 4. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Now at first, you may think that Job has gotten the message, but I don't think so. Here's what's happened. Job has simply gone from pounding to now pouting. From beating his fist to now sticking out his lip. In essence, he's saying, okay, God, you win. You've made your point. From now on, I'm just going to shut up and serve you. You see, Job agrees to serve the Lord, but you can bet he's going to serve God with a grudge. Hey, do you know anybody who's been serving God with a grudge? You see, Job, he has admitted to God's sovereignty. He hasn't accepted it. He doesn't really like it. Understand this. God doesn't want us to pound, nor does He want us to pout. There is a third option. 
God wants us to praise Him for who He is, come what may. God wants us to embrace His sovereignty, to be thankful for it, to praise Him despite our circumstances. Hey, you can say lovingly, Lord, Thy will be done. Or you can say begrudgingly, all right then God, have it your way. And here Job is doing the latter. He's giving in only because he has no other choice. And God is not through correcting Job's attitude. Again, God comes to Job in the whirlwind. And he says to him in chapter 40, verse 7, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. You see, God didn't like the first answer he got from Job, and so he has some more questions. God is relentless in his humbling of Job, for he is after in Job what he seeks in us. Not reluctance, but repentance. A turn of heart. God wants Job as well as you and me to rejoice in his sovereignty, to worship him despite our circumstances. He wants us to realize that he not only runs the universe, but he runs our lives and he's better at it than we are. This time when Job answers God, he gets it right. We're told in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job never did learn why, but he learned something much more important than why. He learned who. And when you really know who, you don't need to know why. You know, I know people whose chief ambition in getting to heaven is to get answers to their questions. <laughs> and I am certain they will get their answers. But I am just as certain that in heaven, their answers won't be nearly as important as they thought they would be. For when we see the beauties and the glories of our Lord Jesus... All of the perplexities, all of the questions will be overshadowed. In the end, the who will swallow up all of the whys. Following the difficult days of World War II, King George VI of England, he made a statement to his countrymen about the uncertainties of the coming new year. I said to the man at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. He said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. The hand of God, better than the light, even safer than the known. Some of you are walking out into uncertain futures. And you've been questioning God. Don't you think a better approach would be to grab his hand a little tighter? Once an old man was walking with his grandson. 
When he asked the boy, he said, son, do you know where you are? The little boy said, nope, Grandpa, I sure don't. He said, well, son, it sounds like to me you're lost. The little boy grinned, nope, Grandpa, I can't be lost. Grandpa said, well, how can you be so sure? And that's when the little guy answered, I can't be lost, Grandpa, because I'm with you. And you see, that's what God wants us to learn. That even when we don't understand, even with no explanation, we are never lost when we're with God. He can be trusted. Well, how do you cope with the poison ivy in your life? Here's what Job would tell us. God is sovereign. He is a big God. He takes orders from no one. He does as he pleases without getting our permission or giving us an explanation. That's why we need to turn off our complaints and our doubts and our questions. And we need to turn on our worship. For God is worthy to be praised. Love God. Don't fight him. Trust God. Don't question him. Real faith doesn't need to know why when it's certain of who. Always remember, what's over my head is still under God's feet. Would you say it with me? Ready? Wake yourself up. Ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. One more time. Ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. God loves you. He loves you so much. Hey, God is so proud of you that He has staked His honor in heaven on your reactions here on earth. Imagine that. God believes that your response to difficulty is going to bring Him glory.